Hello, welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley Twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. All of these links will be in the show notes. I'm Wing. I'm adopted, and this month made me go boom a lot. I'm here with my not-so-evil triplets, Dove and Raven. I'm Dove. I did not go boom this month, but I did fall asleep several times. I'm Raven. I too did not go boom, so therefore there was no shaking of the room. And I am not a real bird. This month, we read Three's a Crowd, First Place, and Against the Rules. In Three's a Crowd, Unicorn Mary Giaccio starts to spend a ton of time at the Wakefield house because she has been brainwashed into loving that family. She's particularly keen to spend time with Alice Wakefield. While Elizabeth doesn't see the harm, Jessica is furious because Jessica must be the center of attention at all times, and I hate her. Also, she will or will not do whatever it takes to make a unicorn happy, depending on the ghostwriter. And this is a will-not book. Turns out, Alice Wakefield reminds Mary of her mother. Jessica tells the whole of Sweet Valley that Mary is going to be adopted, even though it's not her story to tell. And Mary does not want to be adopted in the first place. And Wing's about to go boom again. Mary's mother turns up after going missing years ago, because convenient. And everybody has a happy ending. Except for all the times I went boom. In first place, Lila Fowler, unicorn extraordinaire, gets a horsey. This pisses off Liz because Liz loves horses. All of a sudden, she hasn't given a shit for the previous six books, but all of a sudden she's all over horses. So she sucks up to Lila in an attempt to spend time with the horse. She pretends that she is the horse's owner and... Not really anything happens. Everything happens off screen. I don't even know why I'm recapping it because nothing happened. But eventually everyone lives happily ever after. And believe it or not, Liz doesn't get to have the horse at the end of it. So, yay. I recapped Against the Rules, which was a very, very special episode of Sweet Valley Twins in which Sophia Rizzo, poor, downtrodden, Italian from a broken family, tries to infiltrate the circle of the Wakefields. She does so. Because Elizabeth likes her. Elizabeth likes her a lot. She seems to be Elizabeth's best friend for this book. None of the other books, though. Just this book. Jessica, however, does not like her. She is too poor to be in Jessica's circle of friends. But the real reason she hates her is because of her brother, Tony Rizzo, who is pure evil. We all know that Jessica probably really loves a bad boy underneath. Sophia, it seems, can write. She writes a play. The play is performed. Everybody loves the play. And then they hold a birthday party in her honour, where the older, elder Wakefields decide that being poor is fine and everybody lives happily ever after. And that's Sophia's first birthday in this calendar year. She gets a second birthday in book, like, 60-something. That's pretty impressive. I didn't realise that. I've not read up to book 60-something yet, but can I just say that you left a very dramatic pause there and went, and that's Sophia's first birthday. And I was like, what? I didn't read that. She was writing a play at the age of one? Actually, that's quite impressive. Well, I'm just wondering if, you know, she's so poor and downtrodden, she has to have multiple birthdays in this calendar year to catch up with all the ones that she never got because she didn't know a Wakefield before then. So who knows? Well, on her second birthday in this calendar year, does she have her first birthday party ever all over again? No, but I think I think Elizabeth does throw the party for her. I could be wrong. Because I'm doing two reads at the same time. I'm doing the reread as we recap. And I'm also finishing off the tale section, which I never finished when I was a kid. So I remember reading those quite close together and going, ooh, continuity. Does Elizabeth grow up to be a party planner? Because literally in, in the first nine books that we've read, seven of them involve Elizabeth planning a party. One of the things I really liked is that of these three books, two of them involve people trying to infiltrate the Wakefield family. One of them is all about Elizabeth running far and fast to get into part of someone else's family because they're richer and have what she wants. That is typical Wakefield. Though usually it's Jessica. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the way, how do you say Mary's surname? Because 
I've been saying it wrong for years, I know, because I say it exactly as it's spelt, but can you tell me how it's properly said? Because, like, I was just really impressed that you know. I like that you think I know when I really just made it up, but also, is this going to turn into another... Jodhoppers. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you both so much. Uh, So I said Mary Giaccio. How would you say it? See, that makes much more sense, because, like, 11-year-old Dove read this and went, Gaiaco, which is probably Gaiaco. really wrong. Gaiaco sounds like some sort of Glaxo Industries thing. Gaiaco. <laughs> it really does. This is why we should call every single one Mary's surname. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I was trying to figure out how you were going to say it exactly how it was spelled without saying it the way I did, because I feel like I'm saying it exactly how it's spelled and therefore probably wrong. But yeah, Mary's surname shows up in Three's a Crowd. So let's talk about what your favorite and least favorite books were. Uh, My favorite was probably first place because I also like horsies, even though this was not really a horsey book and also everything was really wrong in it. My least favorite was, of course, Three's a Crowd because it was terrible, but it's tied with Against the Rules because it was also terrible. I liked Against the Rules best because I actually really like Sophia. I, I don't like that she needed to be saved and I really don't like that she's like oh yeah my mum loves me but she's never given me a birthday present go fuck yourself Wakefields I just had this white saviour feel to it um but I really liked Sophia and I really like that this is further back in the series so Sophia was allowed to have a talent that outshined Elizabeth because as it progresses you find that Elizabeth is doing more. She's like directing stuff or she's writing plays and poetry and putting together books and stuff like that. And everyone else is just contributing to Liz's genius. So I liked that this is still in the early stages where someone else could be better. And my worst one was first place. Everything happened off screen. I was so bored and it could have been interesting it could have been fun but it wasn't it was just a bunch of sentences recapping shit that happened off screen for me um i would have liked to have said that my favorite was against the rules because that would have made my my book my favorite for all three of the ones we've done so far but i actually didn't like sophia i thought she was massively overblown and dramatic dramatic she was like oh you've got me a present am i dreaming I've never seen the cake before. And it's just like, really, just calm yourself down, love. Every single thing she did just seemed, seemed, oh, Jessica, she's so, she's so headstrong. I wish I could be headstrong. I'm not headstrong. My brother hates me. Downtrodden eyes. And it's just like, just stop. It's not the X factor. You don't need to tell us your, your ridiculously long backstory every single time something happens. So that wound me up about Sophia. So I think my favourite was probably, I have to say, the horsey book. Just because it was Elizabeth being a bit crap. And usually it's not Elizabeth being a bit crap. It's her trying to rescue the things that Jessica's done. So I did quite enjoy that. My least favourite, though, had to be the adoption book. um, Because that was just a litany of horror from start to finish, to be perfectly honest. I didn't really get anything out of that one at all. It was truly terrible. So let's Mm. start there. Yeah, let's go chronologically yes. with these books. So Start on the so, bottom and dig our way down. <laughs> it just keeps going down. Maybe we should save the horsey <laughs> book for last so we can go, eh, it was okay, better than that other lot. <laughs> and if things get really dire, we'll just get winged to say Jodpers again. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> I have never said that word again in my life. Jodpers, this Jodpers, is going, Jodpers. This is going to be like the time everyone told me that Americans pronounce Raven's real name so that it sounds like a different real name. <laughs> and so I called him Mr. Dove for the next, I don't know, six months instead of saying his first name. <laughs> anyway, Three's a Crowd. Uh, it's a great bundle of terribleness because it contains obviously the adoption and foster care bullshit, but it also opens up with a ton of unnecessary fat shaming. Lois isn't even really in the damn book, and yet Jessica's there left, right, and center talking about this and talking about that, and she lumbers when she walks, which is actually an Elizabeth scene, so they're both terrible. And it's really annoying and really been driven home in this book that Lois, because she's a fat, fat, fatty, of course, is super obsessed with soda and uh, candies. There is a rumor from Caroline that there will be soda machines and candy machines in the cafeteria starting in this book, though it never actually materializes. 
So Lois is obsessed with that because she's a fat, fat, fatty. Elizabeth and Amy are also obsessed with that, but it's okay because they're thin. And also, Stephen eats everything that's not nailed down and probably things that are too. Yet it's okay for him because he's a growing boy and I hate everyone. It is weird, the fat shaming. I mean, I've noticed that as um, it, it comes through in all of the books. Now, I'm of the opinion that people can have negative traits in any of the books. People can say bad things and do bad things in order to show their progression throughout the book and their redemption hopefully at the end or even even not their redemption if, if that character is going to be continually bad but the thing with the fat shaming is it just seems to be for no reason it's just like a dropped in comment every now and then i mean i could sort of understand it and accept it if it was going to lead somewhere but it is literally just thrown in for a joke and you're supposed to laugh at it and laugh along with the people doing it which is wrong just horrible horrible well um, i am hoping that book number 145 is lois killing everybody because that would be great oh, that's the one we should write if we do if we do a uh, if we do a um a little bit of fan fiction for it i reckon we write that story sweet valley twins 247 the fatties strike back yeah <laughs> I love it. My problem is that it is a throwaway line. It's always yeah. just a joke. But also that the text really supports these things because it's from Elizabeth and Jessica who are yeah. our heroes. Yeah. Yeah. And even when they're doing bad things, the text kind of supports them. But they do occasionally show that Elizabeth has made a mistake or Jessica has made a mistake. But it's never about the fat shaming. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. thing is, like, they'll be going, oh, Lois is a fat, fat, fatty. Oh, look at her wearing a leotard. Have you seen anything any more disgusting? Let's go to Casey's for butterscotch sundaes. I'm going to have double whipped cream and chocolate on top because I'm thin and it's okay when I do that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really brings in real life prejudices and beliefs it gets it that still linger today so it's it's hard to read it as just such a casual thing and i just can't stop thinking about kids reading this and just mm. how much that would have hurt them so and yeah which... characters can do terrible things but mm. yeah so in addition to this kind of throwaway fat shaming that shows up in every book three's a crowd is also terrible because again it comes down to jessica doing whatever she wants no matter whether it hurts people or not and that at least is not really supported by the text because it does go terribly wrong but what i hate about it is that of all the things jessica does that are terrible including getting super jealous that mary wants to hang out with her family instead of her even though mary's also hanging out with her she could just as easily hang out down there in the kitchen with mary and alice jessica tells people mary's private business without permission before it's even been confirmed and they constantly talk about what a terrible gossip caroline is but here is jessica putting in the newspaper that sweet valley sixers that mary's going to be adopted she tries to throw this great celebration for her and then she gets mad when mary doesn't like what she's done and it's just such pure jessica wakefield bullshit and it's of course echoed by the side story, which is that Elizabeth is trying to enter the newspaper into a competition. Uh, Jessica and Mary accidentally damage some of the master pages that have it has to be copied off of because, you know, this is before computers were involved with making newspapers. And Jessica, instead of coming clean, makes a bunch of changes to the pages, including Elizabeth's prize story that she's going to submit. And then it ends up being a better article that Elizabeth could have written on her own. So Jessica, even though they fight about it, Jessica is still supported by the text and that doing this was okay. The thing with that, I, I, in a way, I quite enjoyed the the very last point that you made, that Jessica's article being slightly better than Elizabeth's article. Because when they were actually going through the motions of rewriting the bits and changing sections, what they were coming up with was obviously rubbish. It was it was awful. And they ended up by sticking a, 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 a yeah, a recipe for ribs at the end of it from some ridiculous Johnny Book style celebrity. And and that was submitted or I don't know. I can't remember if it was submitted or not, but it was discovered at the last minute or whatever. And the teacher in charge, Mr. Bowman, he of the horrible clothes, when actually I quite liked this new bold way you're going forward. And that made me think, is Elizabeth actually rubbish? Is everything she writes awful? Because it's been proven to be worse than this rib recipe laden crap. So that really does kind of sum up everything that's terrible about Three's a Crowd. And of course, it all works out in the end. And Mary gets her mother back. And Jessica and Elizabeth get to have the shared credit. And of course, the newspaper wins a prize. Even though it's existed for about 30 seconds at this point. 
So yes, as always, everything's tied up with a neat little bow. So, Doug, why don't you tell us about first place? First place sucks. This was our favourite. This was mine, mine and um, Wing's favourite, was it not? And believe me, you're being judged for that. <laughs> this is my favourite, and I've been bitten by a horse. That's how much I enjoyed this book. Or that's how much I hated the others, who knows? Oh, we were promised the, the biting story. Wing, tell us about Daddy Wing's horse story. Oh, I wanted his biting story. On oh, my, my biting, you want my biting story? Okay, yeah. I was nine. I went to an urban farm, which was basically a tiny field with a horse in it. My f- mother and my father gave me a, a, an apple to feed to the horse. And I went up to the fence and went, oh, oh, this is me holding an apple, making that noise. Oh, horse, horse. And the horse came to me, sniffed the apple, and then took a massive bite out of my chest. Just reached forward and went, and took a chunk out of my left boob. Um, my mum grabbed me and my dad shouted at the horse and it backed away. And then we went and got in the car while the horse was taken away somewhere. And that's all I know. And from that day forward, he became glue, apparently. <laughs> no, no, no. He now lives on a farm in Wales. Uh, all right. So a little bit of background on my horse fighting story, though it is not that kind of horse fighting story. Uh <laughs> Before I was born, or before I was adopted, technically, by them, my parents raised horses. And by the time I came along, they just had three, basically, as pets. My father is a short, stout little man who is a huge temper and super grumpy and stubborn and therefore amazing. He was grooming a horse. The horse stepped on his foot. The horse would not move when he shoved him and pushed him because the horse did not want to have this work done to him. So my father reached up dragged the horse's head down and bit the horse's ear until he (laughs) lifted his foot. So for a few minutes, there's my father biting the horse's ear and the horse standing on his foot. And neither of them are going to stop doing what they're doing until the other gives up. (laughs) My father won in the end. (laughs) The horse moves first. I don't have any horse biting stories. Oh, Oh, wait, I do have one, which was I was just on the verge of convincing my mother to buy me a pony called Fancy, who was my soulmate when I was 12. I loved this horse. She was my favourite horse in the world ever. And she looked like a bigger version of the pony that I already had. And so it would just be awesome. I wanted both of them because I'd outgrown the other one. And this was the one I wanted instead. So I took my mum to see her and Fancy Regarded my mother for a few seconds and then lunged forward and bit her on the stomach, drew blood. My mother had to be taken to the hospital, given a tetanus shot. And uh, guess what? I never actually got to own Fancy. Sounds like Fancy owned your mother. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One more thing I'll say about that story is that you were very nonchalant the way you delivered that. You were like, oh, I don't think I have a horse biting story. Oh, no, hang on, there's this. And there's one where basically a horse nearly bit your mother in half. I don't know why that hasn't stayed in the memory. Because when you're a real horse person, in, in at least in England, or maybe specifically in Kent, there are so many other stories, like the time I was concussed and was asleep for three days, or the time I fell off and nearly broke my back, or the other time that I fell off and nearly broke my back at an actual horse show because someone shook out a bag just as we were approaching a jump and I landed on the jump on my, on the small of my back. So all of those kind of take precedent, like there, or the time someone fired a gun while I was on an untrained horse and me and the untrained horse went flying off and, um, yeah, I woke up like three days later in bed at home. I, I have no idea what happened in the interim. Okay, proposal. Uh, even though first place was my favorite, maybe we don't talk about first place and Dub just regales us with horse stories. Because <laughs> <laughs> all of those sound more interesting than the actual book did. <laughs> also, if the title of this podcast is it, and then my father bit the horse, I am going to be really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, should we maybe talk about Sweet Valley? Clearly yeah. not. But yes, why don't you tell us all the ways you hated this book? In theory, it should have been a fun book. Lila gets a horse. Liz wants one but doesn't get one. That in itself is very fucking funny. Even more funny is the fact that Liz actually has the thought that she deserves. And that's a quote. She deserves a horse more than Lila. And so she starts sucking up to Lila so that she can spend all of her time with the horse. And... We don't actually get to see that. It all happens off screen. And so the book is entirely comprised of sentences such as, 
Elizabeth really enjoyed her riding lesson today. OK, well, that was her first riding lesson. Why didn't we get to see it? Elizabeth loved looking after Thunder. If she loves it that much, why have I never seen her do it? Elizabeth felt bad about faking a friendship with Lila. Then why is that not on screen? Why am I just hearing about her past tense guilt? Put something on this book other than shit that happened off screen. And that's why I don't like it. That's that's why this is the worst book, because nothing happens in the book. The book is a recap of events as told by someone who's vaguely aware of them. It's bollocks. I do find it interesting just to see the different ways that the horse riding is vaguely talked about, uh, because... I believe Dove calls it European style, but here, at least growing up, it would have been Western style versus English style. We had Western style riding and horses. So even though a lot of it is incorrect, as Dove will be happy to tell us, uh, it was interesting to see that sort of difference to it and how, eh, to be very blunt, how much more snobby that world is than the Western style. Yeah, I, I once was waiting to go into an arena for show jumping. This might have even been the time I nearly broke my back. And I was on a horse next to someone else on a horse who I knew vaguely from Pony Club. And she gave me a snotty look and she went, did you know that my tack is handmade in Sweden specifically for my pony? And I just thought, oh, die in a fire, you snob. But it was such a perfect example of the bollocks that people talk at Pony Club. So, yeah, it really is a snobby world. The thing that got me about this, um, taking the snobbiness out <laughs> away from it, the thing that got me about this was the fact that Elizabeth is suddenly so enamoured with being being a horse person. And all of a sudden, everything is horsey, horsey, horsey. And then she goes along, she gets on a horse... And by God, can that girl ride? It's just like, oh, really? Can can there just be something that she can't do from the word go? Even all, all of the stable hands and, and people working, uh, their the heads have been turned as they stand and watch this 12-year-old girl who's been on a horse once in her life suddenly canter sideways like a crab or whatever cool dressage things happen and, and leap over skyscrapers or whatever horses do and it was just more fuel for the wakefield perfection machine because the reality of that would be because i used to help at a stable when when i was about elizabeth's age i did it from you know seven upwards or whatever up until i was about 14 when i had to stop but if anyone sort of like rode your horse and they weren't very good you'd find yourself going she'd do that better for me I think that would be more likely the reality. It's like, oh, this quarter horse with wonderful breeding, with a natural jump, and there's a 12-year-old doing figures of eight and the odd Cavaletti. They're not sitting there going, oh, my God, how wonderful. They're like soulmates. They're supposed to perform together. They're going, that horse could do so much better with a real rider. And here's the other thing with this. Uh, and, yes, it is a very different style than what I grew up and how I ride. But she goes in and we basically hear about one or maybe two lessons. And suddenly she's teaching herself how to jump. That is not only someone being ridiculously good at something way too fast, but that's the situation where in reality she would have broken her own neck and or the horse's leg and one or both of them would have been out of jumping forever and possibly dead leaving this. So it's it's annoying because she, it's another Wakefield perfectionism, but it's also completely unrealistic and terrifying. That's actually a really good point. There's a book series that most pony girls in the UK is familiar with. And they are called the Jill books and they're by Ruby Ferguson. And in the first book, a girl called Jill gets a pony. Her family's quite poor, but her mum comes into a little bit of money and says, what do you want? I'll treat you. And the girl says, I want a pony. But they can't afford lessons. So the girl is trying to teach herself by reading books about it. But even that is not good enough. Like she is rubbish at it and she freely admits it. And she feels like her pony hates her because she's trying to tack him up and she's failing at it. And she tried to do a jump and he just sort of like wouldn't have any of it. And he just kind of threw her over his shoulder and she apologized to the pony. That is a more realistic, self-taught person. It's it's going to be a lot of failure, especially without the Internet. It's just I'm sick of the Wakefields. They're so good at everything. And I hate and I hated the way they were soulmates. I think I quoted it in my recap, the way that Thunder looked at her as if to say, yes, 
you're the one. It's like, oh, fuck off. That is an interesting little parallel to books that were, I think, published around the same time, uh, maybe even a little earlier. The Mercedes Blackie Valdemar books, in which there are these magical white horses that are basically human smart and on and on and on but that's how they choose their person they gaze deep into their soul and yes you're the one and i was like wait did this just suddenly become a fantasy novel because (laughs) okay maybe they'll be better that i could have got behind you know (laughs) if all of a sudden she's got a sword and she can and the horse breathes fire and it's like screw you lila we we're going off to fight dragons you know let's go for that to be fair, they, we have had the unicorns, so there is some sort of fantasy element involved there. Actually, um, with you saying about the unicorns, I am frankly astounded that Lila didn't glue a horn onto uh, Thunder. That is such a missed opportunity. I mean, that would have had to mean that she cared, and oh my god, she would have dyed his coat purple too. Because um, we sometimes um, made unicorn horns for our ponies. Obviously, we didn't glue them to the pony. We we sort of like made something really crap out of paper, so it didn't have any weight, and we'd you know, tie it to the brow band and it'd stay there for about three minutes and then it'd fall off. And then someone would say, what, who's dropped paper? And we'd all feel really ashamed. But Lila would have gone the whole, daddy, bring me a novel. I will (laughs) cut off its horn and glue it to my horse. Daddy, bring me a novel is also another good title for this podcast. (laughs) In fact, I think you should go with that one. (laughs) Okay, I'm quite proud of that one myself. (laughs) You should be. That is an interesting point about Ted. That is a good way to bring... Oh, my God, I give up. Because she's right. she really it was, is purple. Okay. It was the fact you were like, grown-up voices, his is go. So I was imagining this poor D-Horn novel doing limps of her, uh, laps of her Olympic-sized swimming pool. Just mournfully crying for her horn. Oh, we're terrible people. I love it. Okay. That is a good segue into one of the things that I did kind of like about this book. Literally, as I'm sitting here about to say it, I'm realizing that it's actually terrible, too. Ted is a stable hand who is desperately saving up to own to buy his own horse because his mother, who was very famous in the horse world, died. and They had to sell off her horses to pay bills and he wants to go back into the horse world. So, again, we have this poor character who the Wakefields kind of come in and save as always. But I did think that it was interesting the way he was presented, not as this terrible character that no one could be around. He was a poor boy who was, or he was not poor as in broke, but poor as a very sad boy who was down on his luck, but could still be brought back up into the world that he had once been a part of. Whereas uh, in Against the Rules, their family has pretty much always been poor and they are to be avoided because it's terrible and horrible. So that was an interesting contrast to have two books back to back that dealt with uh, some class issues. That's actually a really good point. And I just felt like slapping Liz when she was really proud of him for playing basketball with Stephen, despite his limp. You did forget, though, that she is a super duper ninja basketball coach, lol. Because she did teach Ken Matthews how to how to shoot a basket from, despite the fact that he's literally three inches tall. Yes, but come Battle of the Cheerleaders, she has literally never played basketball before. I remember I sent you all a screen cap of the page as I was reading it. To be fair, by uh, this book in the series, the Ghostwriters have also forgotten that she taught Ken to play basketball because she certainly doesn't go play. She just stares out the window at them because girls can't play basketball. We should invent a drinking game for this this series. And you can do the drinking. Oh, I said series and activated Siri. (laughs) Okay, so maybe we should talk about Against the Rules. I think so. Nothing happens in first place despite the fact that Raven and I both liked it best, so let's move on to the next book that things actually sort of happen in. So Raven, why don't you walk us through Against the Rules and why you did not like it as your favourite book for the first time. Okay, so uh, Against the Rules was a very special episode which was dealing with poverty in Sweet Valley and the fact that the, the Rizzo family um, which include Sophia Rizzo, Mama Rizzo, whose name escapes me, and the evil malignant Tony Rizzo, who once stole a VCR and went to reform school. Um, and it's about how they become integrated within the society of Sweet Valley and how the town goes from absolutely detesting all of them and everything they stand for 
um, to embracing them all and everything being tied up in those sweet, sweet little, neat little bows that we're all coming to know and love from the uh, Sweet Valley Twins experience. So our Sophia is presented early on as Elizabeth's best friend, um, which is a big slap in the face for Amy, who's been her best friend for a while, but who doesn't seem to care about this whole thing, um, this whole new friendship that Sophia and Amy have, because it's obviously convenient for the plot this time. So, yeah, fine. Amy can go drown in a lake for all anyone cares in this book. Um, Sophia, it seems, is very, very good at writing. And um, as luck would have it, the English faculty in Sweet Valley Middle School has decided that there will be a big school play um, and the students can decide what that school play is. And they have also decided that the the students are going to write it this year. This is very exciting news to Sophia in particular because she has written plays in the past. And it turns out that Sophia is a fantastic writer, but everybody in the town wants nothing to do with her and nothing to do with her play. Nobody in, in Sweet Valley Middle wants anything to do with it, apart from Elizabeth, obviously. And even the Wakefields don't want Elizabeth to have anything to do with Sophia because of the bad influence that is being put on Tony's plate. Tony, the reform school child, is not going to uh, exert any, any good influences on, on, on anyone. So, so Elizabeth can't go anywhere near them, apparently. So that's great parenting there from the Wakefields. Um, it's also, Tony also punches Stephen in the face. I give him 10 points yeah. right there for, for doing that, because let's face it, we all want to punch Stephen in the face. I'm surprised he managed to get, get room past all the food that Stephen's constantly stuffing in his face. I was going to say at that point, Tony became my favourite character in Sweet Valley, so thank you, Tony. The thing is, I mean, I'm always one for the peripheral characters in this series, and I do think that Tony, as presented, is one of my favourite peripheral characters, especially in this book. I know there's not that many. I know that Dove particularly likes Sophia Rizzo, but I didn't really connect with her because she was so overblown dramatic and so everything was everything was either woe is me or wow am I dreaming that it just grated on my nerves. Whereas at the few months of the book where where they where they have the, the play and everybody watches the play and goes, Wow, that Sophia can write and there's the play's a wonderful success and she's acting in it and there's cries for author and then they throw a surprise birthday party for her, um, in which the Wakefields didn't know anything about and then they found out about it and said it was okay and the Wakefields went into full let's rescue this entire situation by going and bringing the mother and the, the son to the to the party as well. And Tony said, ah, I'm not coming. I'm going to stay at home. Thank you very much. I'm not nothing to do with this. And I quite like that about him. I, I quite like the fact that he decided not to. He was immune to Wakefield charm, yes. And I presume that Tony doesn't come into this again because I presume that Sophia doesn't come into this again, despite being best friends with Elizabeth for an entire time. She'll occasionally get mentioned like, Elizabeth sat down to lunch with her best friends, Amy Sutton, Julie Porter and Sophia Rizzo. But I get the feeling that Julie and Sophia are totally interchangeable or maybe even Nora could like switch in for one of them. Sometimes Brooke. It's basically Amy is her best friend. And then whichever kid the book is about is her second best friend. And everyone else just works on a rotation if there's nothing going on. Like if nobody has a very special problem of the week, everyone just sort of like shifts on or off. I don't know. It's weird. This one, the thing about the best friends in this one is that it's hammered home quite heavily that she is basically falling in love with Sophia and everything that Sophia stands for, which I presume is so they can do the whole, my parents says I can't hang around with you anymore and have that be more important to the plot. Because if it was a case of my friends, my parents say I can't hang around with you anymore, my second best friend, it's or even third best friend, because we all know that Jessica's her best friend, then it, that, that import is lost a bit. But then it, it's, it, it's very jarring at the end of this. It's like, yay, the play was a success. Happy birthday. Right. Let's never speak of this again. So it's it's it, the whole thing struck me as very disingenuous. Uh, one thing I do like, though, about this different ways that Jessica and Amy react to constantly being replaced by the girl of the hour is that Jessica freaks out every time that she's losing her best friend and she's not the center of attention. And Amy's just really chill about it. And I know that it's just sloppy writing, but I'm choosing to read that as Jessica's totally insecure about their relationship. And Amy is, you know, so secure and that she's awesome and their friendship will last that other people can be Elizabeth's friend and it's not a big deal. I can sort of see that. However, having read into the future, there is, this is not a spoiler, but there is a time where Amy is not quite so 
um, cool about the whole thing. And she burns the Wakefield house to the ground and everyone dies except for Stephen. And then she puts Stephen in a yellow wig and calls him Elizabeth. And we never talk about Jessica. We're not to Bleak Valley yet. so <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just going with my personal headcanon. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, now that uh, Raven has said that, I sort of shit Sophie and Elizabeth. Yeah. Except, no, Elizabeth is terrible and she deserves so much better. <laughs> One thing that is interesting to me uh, and kind of terrible, too, is that the Rizzos are really coded as people of color in this mm. book. Yes. And it's it's complicated because Italians are and are not considered people of color in the United States. Specifically now, they're mostly considered white, but that wasn't always the case. And I will, in the show notes, we will include an article on fusion.net, which talks about uh, the fact that Italians weren't always white in America. And this has really coded them as not white. Uh, they're described, Sophia in particular is described as very small and dark. The issues that Tony has with his anger, the stealing, the being poor and in poverty from the beginning, not just someone who's fallen on hard times like Ted in the previous book, even the absent father who was bad at parenting when he was there and is now gone and is terrible and the older brother having to step up as a parent. These are all very strongly coded minority stories in books in the United States, particularly in this time of publishing. And it's really horrifying that it gets this white perfection and white savior of Elizabeth coming in to save the day. Even down to the Wakefields forbidding Elizabeth to be friends with Sophia and to go to her house. And you could see her at school, but you can't talk to her outside of school. Very racially coded. And of course, Sweet Valley taking on some sort of racial politics is horrifying just on the surface of it and not handled well here at all. Yeah. And in a later book, um, just to hammer your point home even further in a later book Sophia's mum needs to come to the school to discuss something and we'll get into that when we finally get to the book but the principal is explaining the situation and her English is not good enough to follow it and I think there was a bit maybe even in Against the Rules where she was having problem find having problems finding a job yes, and was, was having yeah she was having problems finding a job. It was all tied up quite neatly at the end with Mother Wakefield giving her a possible job creating Afghan rugs and stuff like that. And also giving them, giving her English lessons because it was a, it was um, an investment in the company and in her own future. So yes, it surprises me that after however many books that the English, if the English lessons are going on, then why she's still shown like that. I'm thinking of Sarah's dad and Sophia's mum. I think it's book number 54 or 56. I'm just going to check. But yeah. So it's pretty far in the future. Yeah. So if that's the case, way to go Wakefields on the whole English lessons bit. Well, though, I suppose to be fair, in the way this book does, or these books do and do not travel through time, that could be a week from the time period. <laughs> that, that is true. Actually any time. That's true. It's actually book 62, but obviously, with it being called Sarah's Dad and Sophia's Mum, we have to meet Sarah first, so it's at least a month away. Well, okay then. Uh, but Go yeah. Back. Oh, sorry, just a little bit continuing from your comment of the, um, the, uh, the racial coding, if you like. Um, I also found it quite offensive if you if you take that into account that the Wakefield parents who basically are included on this plan when they stumble in to see Elizabeth throwing a surprise party and then having watched the play knowing that Sophia is a bit more than what they originally thought and then having Elizabeth explaining what the issues were with her family they could then spend 15 minutes of their time most of which would have been involved driving over to the bloody house and solve all the problems that that family have in one fell swoop. It's um, very multi-generational white savior. It's very mm. belittling. And also it really plays into the model minority myth where they're not good enough until Sophia proves that she is the best writer ever and this great mm. person to be friends with. And then suddenly the whole family gets uplifted by that. And also, if you want a cheap VCR, you just speak to Tony. He'll sort you out. I will say, I think that this segues nicely into Bleak Valley because it does kind of create this world where Elizabeth gets to be awesome at everything, which is definitely something that would happen if she's telling the story where she is trying to survive well. Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. 
She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life. The name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul? Bleak Valley. Bleak Valley. One of the things that I felt about, which was particularly bleak in the Bleak Valley um, sphere this time, was in uh, in Three's a Crowd, um, because the whole idea of adoption in in the Bleak Valley universe is quite is quite telling. I think that I see poor beleaguered Elizabeth, Bleak Valley Elizabeth, wanting to be rescued from where she is, and the idea of adoption could be something that she is flirting with in her mind. But I think that for this to occur, she puts herself as, into the character of Mary, who's not really sure if she wants to be adopted, if that's the way she wants to get out of her horrible situation. So therefore, she might think it's a good idea. And so everybody is talking about Mary's adoption in the actual book as being the greatest idea for her. But Mary herself, and by extension Elizabeth, does not really want that to happen. And her fantasy plays out in, the, in that she's not adopted, but she is actually rescued by her real parents, which is really what Elizabeth's fantasy is leaning towards. She doesn't want to believe that the people who are mistreating her and locking her in this cellar and feeding her mouse droppings or gruel, whatever, whatever she's eating, are her actual biological family where, where they obviously are. And it's very telling that Mary looks enough like the twins... Yes. To have the same model on, on one of her books, which is coming up. And her mother looks just like Alice Wakefield. So that really does yeah. dive into your theory. Mary's also a unicorn, I believe. So she could she be is. a good mixture of Elizabeth and Jessica, which is what obviously Elizabeth is. Ah, yes, because she can type as well, which is one of she Elizabeth's can. skills. Yeah. And so she maybe... can't spell, which is a Jessica thing. So she really is a nice mix of both Elizabeth and this imaginary Jessica. I think that idea that the mother coming to rescue is is really on point. Because I think even when you are not in this terrible situation, a lot of times kids growing up imagine, oh, my real parents are out there somewhere. Uh, I secretly a princess and all of these things on and on where someone comes to rescue them. And of course, for Elizabeth, being adopted out sounds like a great way to escape. But it's no guarantee that whoever adopts her would be better than what she's living with now. So a mother coming in to save her from these terrible people who are hurting her is absolutely a fantasy. I can see Bleak Valley Elizabeth spinning out. Maybe that's why she doesn't really want to embrace the uh, the adoption thing because she's got no real frame of reference about what a good parent would be because the the characters who are looking to adopt in the book they're fine but they're not well fleshed out or they're not they're not particularly engaging they're just people and just to uh dive into my personal life i was actually repeatedly threatened with being sent to foster care when i was about elizabeth's age and i would always beg please don't send me away because it's just that feeling that something else might be worse. You know, this is where I am, so this needs to get better, and please don't send me away. So I can understand why Elizabeth is like, no, I'll, I'll be, you know, my fantasy is that I'll be saved by a bio parent swooping in and taking me away and making everything like happily ever after. I do think there's this idea that in society, and it was very prevalent in the 80s, I see less of it now that it's still there. This idea that a bio parent means that they can't leave you, like if you're mm, separated, yeah. it's not willingly, like here, uh, Mary is not her mother doesn't abandon her by choice. Mary's basically stolen from her literally by a friend of their friend and scarecrows of theirs. So there is, I think this idea that bio parent means that they will protect you and take care of you. And that's the safe thing. She'll never be abandoned by that, which isn't true in reality. 
but also does put a bunch of fear on this idea of the foster system as the scary other. You don't know where you go. They can get rid of you at any second, which actually comes up in this when Mary decides not to be adopted or Elizabeth as Mary decides not to be adopted. They're going to get rid of her, this foster family, because Mm -hmm. they can't adopt her. So they're going to kick her off to some other family and kick her out of this home that she likes in this place that she's built life. But I think that kind of fear lingers there in Elizabeth. Like she could be adopted out and escape, but she's going to lose everything she knows, possibly even the sweet valley that she's created. Once again, if this is all the imagination of a 12 year old, it sort of explains why she seems to think that the adoption of a child goes childless fostering adoption which which seemed to be a very prevalent myth in the 90s and uh raven and i did some research about fostering uh, about five years ago and you know absolutely not the case like if you foster you foster if you adopt you adopt they're two separate entities but to someone who hasn't done the research i.e bleak valley elizabeth that makes perfect sense yeah like a try before you buy scheme which is terrifying, but also exactly what Bleak Valley Elizabeth would come up with, because it does. People are terrible. They're going to try you out and see how they can use you before they take you. Uh, and I do think that there's this feeling that fostering is this temporary way to be a family or to not be a family, just a temporary way station that when Mary's foster parents want to adopt her really throws everything for a loop. Like it's an escape for Bleak Valley Elizabeth, but it's also not how the world works. So it can't even really exist in this sweet Valley world. She can't let that be the change that uh, shakes things up. I also do like the fact that the conflict is very, very starkly um, emphasized about whether she wants it or not with Elizabeth saying, Mary, you shouldn't tell anybody about this, and Jessica saying, it's absolutely fine, it's going to be great. And those two sides of the Bleak Valley Elizabeth's psyche are distinctly cracked, so she doesn't know which way she'd like to go, she doesn't know which way it is, and it does take the metaphorical white horse to come in and rescue her, which is her mother. Speaking of horses, where do you think um, Bleak Valley sits in in the horsey book? I think that maybe Elizabeth picked up um, a horse magazine or something like she just found it or she maybe found a picture of a horse in a newspaper or something and she stuck it on her wall and she was like yes I think my sweet valley Elizabeth would like horse riding and then she kind of thought about it and she was like well I don't think my my Wakefield's would buy me a horse but Lila would definitely have a horse because she's rich and she's got a narwhal and <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's how it came about, like, or maybe she's got like a little horsey toy that she's always called Thunder and, you know, she wanted Thunder to become more integrated into Sweet Valley. But at the same time, I I think in the back of her mind, she was like, I don't want to maintain having a horse for the rest of my fantasy. So that might be another reason why she gave it to Lila instead, because she can have a horse as long as it's convenient, but someone else should should own the horse. That way she's not a bad horse owner. I think that's a really good point. And two, I love this idea of her seeing a picture, because within the text of the book itself, the Sweet Valley text, her mother gives Elizabeth a locket that she had as a kid where she cut out a picture of a horse from a magazine or something and put it inside the locket. And it really is just this example of, of that what's happening in Bleak Valley in this theory of ours leading into the Sweet Valley world where she sees a picture of a horse. Of course, it's in a locket because that's how you show love. And Dove, of course, flipped out because that's not what you put inside a locket in Dove, as Raven said, <laughs> is the locket, please. But so it is weird to put, I think, a clipping from a magazine in a locket. And so that is just this weird discordant note in the Sweet Valley version of the book, whereas in Bleak Valley, it makes perfect sense that she's kind of tying that reality into it yeah i think i think ours is now more canon than the actual books <laughs> i think you've just well, won any argument we pay attention to the details i do think too that both in uh, first place and against the rules these things that elizabeth does for the first time that she's magically good at is really a tie back to bleak valley because bleak valley elizabeth has nothing no sense of being good at things, no sense of people caring about her and loving her. So, of course, in the Sweet Valley world she builds, she is going to be great at things because that's all she has. Yeah, they can't show a lesson because Elizabeth doesn't know what a horse riding lesson is like. So 
instead you have her like i think it's the first chapter where she's like oh i'm really looking forward to my horsey lesson and then there's like a paragraph break and then after elizabeth's lesson she was skipping home through the daisies thinking how beautiful sweet valley was and i know i quoted that because it was just so eye-pokingly look at my perfect life and really does tie into bleak valley because obviously bleak elizabeth doesn't know what a horse riding lesson is like so all she can do is go look at how pretty the flowers are i know what flowers are Let's see, personally, when I had this with a Bleak Valley bleak valley gaze to it, I got slightly darker than you two, I think. Oh, I, um, I pictured that she hasn't really seen many pictures of a horse, or she hasn't got a small toy. The locket thing is very cool. I think that is away from what I'm thinking. But I thought that she called the horse Thunder, because what it was was her father being drunk on the stairs above her stamping up and down the stairs and making that noise and that was the thunder that she heard even like deliberately hammering his feet down just to wake her up and swear at her and just being generally nasty and that's why the horse is called thunder and the whole reason it's a horse is because she wants to get on it and ride as far away as possible oh that's really well done way to bring it down raven Yeah, and she's even named it after a sound that she's frightened of. So Sweet Valley Elizabeth can face Bleak Valley's fears. That's... Aww. And overcome them and be good and take the fear and turn it into something wonderful. That's a really great look at a psyche there. Nicely done, Raven. And also, we're all depressed now. (laughs) To slightly depress you a bit further, if we take that that a bit further on the whole, yeah, and she can overcome them. She doesn't actually ride them yet. She goes, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stay under my stairs because... Yeah, Ted does the show and wins the prize and... Because she can't just ride off. Because if she could win that prize and ride off into the sunset, then... She'd be free. And then Sweet Valley ends and she no longer has that protection. It does. Uh, if you tie it back to Three's a Crowd, too, there's a scene where Mary gives Jessica her favorite bracelet that she never takes off and that we later learned was the one thing she had from her mother. Uh, she gives that to Jessica. And in the Sweet Valley version, even it definitely read as her giving away her things to commit suicide. So I do think that there is a tie of a potential way to end the Sweet Valley world that Elizabeth has created because suicide is always lurking in the background. And I think, too, like riding away on the horse could be this metaphoric suicide and she just keeps pulling back from that she's not quite there yet wow god that's you two are like really depressing so what do we think about against the rules how does that factor in well one thing i noticed and noted is that her, she's so worried in the build-up to this secret party. Elizabeth feels very guilty over lying to her parents and lying to jessica because it's really a kind of deep bunch of secrets here not only do she and jessica switch places so jessica can go on this trip to la to go to this show that she wants to see that elizabeth doesn't tell her parents they don't tell her parents they're switching places and on and on and on but when the parents show up everything is perfect and wonderful and they welcome uh, sophia and go get sophia's mother and bring in the family and are going to save everything so that's for a girl who's constantly punished for existing, having parents that come into this huge bundle of lies, and literally there's no punishment for it within the text of the book, though Elizabeth hints that they'll be punished later. Uh, that's really this moment of perfection that she desperately needs someone to come in and look at what she's done wrong, whether doing wrong is lying or doing wrong is merely existing. She needs someone to validate her, and so she gives it to herself in that way. I also think that the way that the town looks at Sophia is how everyone looks at Elizabeth and her family in Bleak Valley. She was nearly brave enough to deal with that, but but instead she was like, oh, no, it, it's Sophia. I'm Elizabeth. I'm a Wakefield. I'm, I'm the centre of this world and everyone loves me, but I'm going to rescue you, even though I really want to rescue me. I say that or this idea that the Wakefields are how they look at her parents who have this perfection built up outside the home, but Sophia and her family are how they would look at Elizabeth, how the town would look at Elizabeth if they knew about her. I, one of my theories in Bleak Valley is that people don't even know she exists. so the wakefields have this perfect shiny bright successful image and the secret daughter hidden in their basement basically and so to her her parents and the wakefields are perfect and for her she is this mess of a person whose family's fallen apart and is doing everything wrong and they're judged for no reason and she can't ever break out of that yeah that's not like that 
Um, one thing I would also say is the um, the play itself in, in the actual um, the book. It, it's described as the voice of the students and the the real stories that are coming across. Now, if that was the case and that was written by Elizabeth herself, it would be a massively bleak tale. And that's why in her psych, she's farmed that off to somebody else who can tell a better story and doesn't have to tell everyone's doesn't have to tell her story but can tell slightly more anodyne versions of the issues that she has but even they are bleak enough to not be properly defined within the book within the narrative we have lines like oh this is these um these problems seem to ring true with everyone but there's never any issue never discussion of what the problems they have or anything like that because if elizabeth starts talking about the abuse that she is facing even though it's through another character in her mind and through their play of that character's problems then if she would vocalize the horror that she's going through i think that would drag her back into reality and breaker to be honest so she had to put up two buffers between her two buffers between and even then not be explicit in what was going on i think it's very true even down to some of the casting because after this whole boycott that ends up not being a boycott because the words are so powerful bruce patman does go on to try out for the role of the father and he gets accepted for it because and i quote he loves telling everyone what to do i thought he'd make a great parent so there's this idea that what's being apparent, even within the confines of this, this story that she is two or three steps removed from to protect herself, is this idea that the parent is the one who is so bossy and so driven and so focused that it takes a terrible character, because Bruce is a terrible character, to play that role. So she can't even give herself this wonderful parent within this story that she's two or three steps removed from as a buffer. She has no concept of what parenting is. That even ties into your theory about how actually in Bleak Valley, her parents are quite successful and nobody knows about them because who do they choose? The rich, well-liked boy who's actually an absolute shit of a human being. That's very true. Looking at Bleak Valley now, I'm trying hard to think. Are there anyone, is there any redeeming character there that is, she holds on to more than for one, one flight of fancy or one book, shall we say? I can't think of anyone who is, a force for good in her life at all. There's all of the characters are horrible or flawed in some way. I suppose Mr. Bowman, the teacher, even, even his, he's got a terrible dress sense and everyone makes fun of him. But Mr. Bowman would be the one person I would put that into. But even then, it's not a strong character. He's very removed. Right. He's barely there. I mean, even when it's like Amy or Sophia who are her friends, they do disappear after one, but they're not strong enough to be able to be her, her linchpin, her, her anchor in, in the world. She sounds like she's floundering trying to find someone or something that she can cling to and the only the only thing that's constant and always there is jessica and jessica is terrible jessica is i think the side of elizabeth that she wants to be able to let free but cannot for fear of being punished and and being killed perhaps losing herself to that anger and rage so you're right she keeps grasping at, at these people who are straws to hold it but they always slip away and maybe in part because except accepting them and going with them is again that metaphorical suicide like they can't rescue her because to be rescued means this world ends which means she ends this is going to be very sad when we read the final Sweet Valley Twins book. It's going to be like, guess Elizabeth did it. Although I suppose we've got Sweet Valley High. All right. So I think that wraps up Bleak Valley. Nice and depressing as always. Way to yep. bring it down. Did you guys have any final thoughts about these three books or how they fit into the continuity? Keeping in mind, listeners, that Dove and Raven have both now read Far Ahead and I am the only one back with where we actually are in the series. So I am you guys for new <laughs> Yeah, characters. we were just utterly blank, I think. Yeah, I think we're, like, so depressed from Bleak Valley. <laughs> we're just like, I have no thoughts. I just feel sorry for this little 12-year-old lying in an empty cellar, and she's got bare feet, and she's got cold toes, and nobody loves her. And, you know, she's got a picture of a horse that she cut out from a Saturday supplement of the paper. And it's just, like, she doesn't even have a poster from, like, Horse and Pony. It's just something from a newspaper. An imaginary horse isn't even her own imaginary horse. 
I do think it says something about the writing, but also about us as readers that Leaf <laughs> Valley makes uh, the story so much more acceptable and so much more believable. It gives us this emotional hook to hang on. As you may have noticed, we have some new music this week. We have um, music at the beginning, music at the end, and music in the middle for our Bleak Valley section. Um, we are very pleased with the music. It was written by a good friend of mine, Stuart Taylor, who is available to do music for podcasts. He's got lots of examples of his music on the Legacy Breakfast podcast, if you wanted to look that up. And um, we shall put. Uh, we want to thank him for his work, and we'll put um, contact details in the show notes if you wanted to get in touch and get some music done of your own. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sweet Valley Online. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast provider. We really appreciate you guys listening.